So he's talking about this right here is the land, nine and a half tribes. Uh, For the tribe of the people of Reuben by their father's houses and the tribe of the people of Gad by their father's houses have received their inheritance and also the half tribe of Manasseh. So Manasseh is actually on both sides. Um, The two tribes and the half tribe have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan, east of Jericho, toward the sunrise. So that's all this here. Um, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, These are the names of the men who shall divide the land to you for inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun. You shall take one chief from every tribe to divide the land for, the, for inheritance. These are the names of the men of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, of the tribe of the people of Simeon, Shemuel, the son of Amihud, of the tribe of Benjamin, Elidad, the son of Chislon. I always thought, man, if they would have just switched that around, Chilson would be in the Bible. Uh, of the tribe of the people of Dan, a chief, Buki, the son of Jogli, of the people of Joseph, of the tribe of the people of Manasseh, a chief, Haniel, the son of Ephod, and of the tribe of the people of Ephraim, a chief, Kemuel, the son of Shiftan, of the tribe of the people of Zebulun, a chief, Elizaphan, the son of Parnok, of the tribe of the people of Issachar, a chief, Paltiel, the son of Azan, and of the tribe of the people of Asher, a chief, Ahud, the son of Shalomi, of the tribe of the people of Naphtali, a chief, Pedahel, the son of Amihud, These are the men whom the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance for the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. The only thing I really want to mention here is that, you know, there's there's mention of chiefs and clans. So there's, there's, uh, you know, there's order, there's um, uh, distinct areas that each of them will be given. Surely you've seen uh, maps that talk about the various... uh, places in which people um, are distributed. And all this is done by lot, um, and God has given it to them. Again, I'm not going to make any more mention of this, because we talked pretty extensively about this last week. We just didn't get quite to the end of it. So, we're going to go over to Numbers 35, and we're dealing with the Levitical cities. Levitical cities. Levitical cities, and this is actually, um, if you if you're kind of coming across this for the first time, you're 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 reading the book. You should be going, wait a minute, that's kind of strange. Well, hold on a second, Tanner. Do you know how to actually run that sound system, or just Marcus? Okay. <laughs> um, so. What were we told previously about the Levites? I just want it recorded. It is recording. Okay, we're good to go. Thank you, Clark. Okay. Um, What have we been previously told about the Levites in terms of inheritance? Yeah, no, no land. Because their inheritance is what? The Lord, right? They get to actually serve before the temple. That's their Lord. Well, this passage uh, is actually going to say um, that they're going to have an inheritance after all. 
Wasn't that interesting? You have a Levites, no inheritance. Well, here we're going to get, they're going to have an inheritance. But it will be a scattered inheritance. Instead of just having a, like a section of land that's given to the Levites, their inheritance will be scattered among the tribes as a whole. Okay? So, uh, not, I don't know how confident I am that this is a fulfillment of Genesis 49, but it might be, and some people have taken it that way. I'm just going to read this. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Remember, this is the story with Dinah uh, and um, when she was raped, and then they retaliated and wiped out a whole village. Um, and, and there's a curse that's put on them. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So I, I want it, to... It's Prophecies are sometimes hard to understand. And this is because it's Simeon and Levi. And uh, Simeon actually is... Is their tribe is kind of inside of Judah, and so um, it's it's possible that they they kind of get subsumed by Judah, so they kind of lose their distinctiveness. But with Levi, it's possible that God is fulfilling the curse of the Levites being scattered by these Levitical cities, because they will have they will have forty eight cities throughout Israel, and these and and they'll be set up all over Israel. And that you're going to see that they're going to have a portion of land. They're going to get the city, and they're going to get the land around the city that's going to be theirs. So they actually get that. And it's possible that it is a fulfillment of Genesis 49 that they're scattered throughout all of Israel. Not taken, gotten, got rid of as a people, but actually given blessing because they're scattered throughout all the land of Israel. Does that make sense? Following this a little bit? Okay. Let's read 1 through 8, and somebody else can read this now. Uh, uh, let's have Howard read that. He's right there behind you. I'm going to hit that again. It's it. There you go. Okay, so we're not actually told where these uh, Levitical cities are, uh, but there's 48 of them. Uh, they, um, you kind of have a very specific town with walls, and then how far around the town do they have? Yeah, so let's go in cubits first. <laughs> you, made the, you made the jump, okay. Yeah, so how far? So it's like a 1,000 in every direction, right? So it's like, is that right? 
thousand this way, thousand that way. Two thousand? Okay. Two thousand cubits. So you have this kind of and why are you given all the land around there as well? Pasture land. Yep. For your animals. Why would Levites need lots of animals? For the sacrifices. Yep. Um, um, it's not told where these cities of refuge exactly are. I mean, uh, these Levitical cities. But we're going to see in just a moment that the cities of refuge are part of them. So there's going to be six cities of refuge. We'll talk about that in a minute. So at least those six cities, and, and you'll see these stars are where these cities of refuge are going to be very specifically. But there's like a bunch more, right? 48 of, of, the, uh, of these other ones. Um, so, or 48 total. Um, What do you notice about at least the cities of refuge and their distribution? The temple would be like right here. This would be the temple. Yes. Now why would they why would God want these cities of refuge to be fairly evenly distributed? accessible to all the people. And the fact that there's three on each side tells you that these people matter just as much as these people, right? Which is a part of our whole message that, that even though these are the set boundaries of Israel, this is, these people are just as, there's one people. These people are just as important as these people. There's not, like, they're not like lesser tribes because they're on the other side of the Jordan. And so provision for them is given exactly for the people themselves. So you can draw all kinds of, you know, just in our day, you can even think of like, you should want churches in everywhere, you know, <laughs> churches in the Philippines, churches, you know, right? You just you want churches to be proportionate to where God's people are, and so, um, and they should be easily accessible, and they should be serving all of the people, uh, those sorts of things. So, um, at the same time. It would be easy to then conclude, oh, why don't we have a temple in all these areas? But why don't they? Could be lots of reasons. This is guess. You're just, you know, this is not in the text. Just think about this. Why would there, why is there only one temple? Only one heaven? That's good. One Lord, one, one place of sacrifice to be Christ is the only sacrifice. You can't have other uh, forms of sacrifice to get yourself to God, right? There's, there's only one way to God, one ark of the covenant, right? And this is, God doesn't, God doesn't at least formally dwell in all these areas. We know he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, and we'll see how God will show, especially in the book of Ezekiel, how his holy presence can be even over in Babylon or all these other places. But but what he's trying to teach the Israelites is that there's one place to gather for worship, and God is dwelling here on the earth. Yeah? Mm-hmm. 
So she says, um, is, it, is it the idea that, that God is, um, if it's just everywhere, you lose some of the control or some of the specialness of it, that it's, that it's this one place that we come together and gather for all Israel, and then it's very regulated at the temple. So I, it's true. I would say that worship in these other places, certainly people worship uh, in their homes and, and together in their different clans, but there is a, a higher form of regulation of this worship to because it's communicating the truth of the gospel clearly there. So, right, there were three feasts every year where you had to come to the temple. Yep, uh huh. And it would have been a lot easier for these guys to get there than guys down there. So, um, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So they had to have faith and trust that God would take care of their, their homes. Yep. Yep. That's very good. Okay. So um, I just think there's a nice, there's a, that you can see a, a nice blend between, yes, surely like regular worship occurred here, regular Sabbath worship. And then, uh, but the, the formal centralized gathering of God's people and, just kind of the balance of those things. You all have your own lives. You, you, you have a group of people that you hang out with in your little areas. And you have fellowship and pray together and study the word of God. But then there's a gathering we come together to be God's people. And I think both of those are a part of the, the plan of God. They're, they're there from the beginning. And they're here now today too. So um, John Frame, guy I like a lot, he, he suspects that this... Uh, the rhythm of the Sabbath may even go into eternity. We're like, we're, we're in our, who knows what the new heavens and new earth are like, but, you know, we could be in our own little areas and clans, but then we all come together on, on the Lord's Day throughout eternity. Imagine all millions and billions of, I don't know how many people will be in the eternal new heavens, new earth, but um, for that kind, those kind of special worship as well. Okay, anyway, so here we are. So the, the Levitical cities are there. They're very clear. And, and God is in a formal way providing for his Levites, okay? Um, it doesn't, I don't really know how each Levite chose their areas, uh, maybe by lot, I don't know. All right, let's keep going, 9 through 15. I'm not sure if the mic's still working or is work. Kyle, can we make sure that, that mic is, let's try to address that, make sure that that's going. I'll go ahead and read 9 through 15 until we get that going. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be the cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. Okay, what are the, what's the primary purpose of these cities of refuge? Protection in what situation? Right, and so uh, it's, it's basically protection against vigilante justice 
before there's a trial. So they're not, at, they're not like you can do whatever you want and you can go and, and be protected. Um, but Israel really didn't have a quote-unquote police force. Uh, it's hard to imagine that in our day. You know, police do almost everything. But, but like not having a police force, it, if a close relative was killed... It was, it was the, the closest relative, it's their duty to pursue justice in that matter, right? So they were to go forward, and so this is what they call the avenger, the one who would come forth and, and make sure that justice was done. But you can imagine, with humans, instead of the avenger being completely impartial and only wanting justice, he is out for blood, maybe. You know, his loved one has been killed. He is going to go and enact uh, vigilante justice, and it might not actually be justice in a case without trial. So to avoid this, um, this uh, heat of passion kind of response to a murder, or even just an involuntary manslaughter, uh, you could go to these cities of refuge, and, and the Levites there would actually protect you until there could be some sort of trial that would take place. Uh, who is it that determines whether the manslayer is guilty? Who does he have to stand before? The assembly, right? The congregation, which I thought was kind of interesting. And in our own judicial system, this is where we get jury by peers, right? That you stand before your peers. Um, Of course, it might be hard to, to stand before the entire congregation, but there was some sort of representative uh, gathering uh, that you would have to stand before and give your case. Do these, does this uh, cities of refuge, do they only protect Israelites? Sojourners and visitors, right? So it's like this is a, God wants his land to be, he doesn't, he doesn't want there to be murder on his land, but he also doesn't want there to be an unjust response to some sort of death or killing. And so he's providing, doesn't matter who you are, he doesn't want this to occur on his property. That system seems to work better than our system today. <laughs> today no longer, if you lied as a witness, you would die if it was a murder case, something like that. Here, there is no... Yeah, no, I, no, I would. Well, it it's, goes without saying that uh, that God's pattern is a good one, so uh, we we should learn from it. And I think our uh, founding fathers wanted to learn from the wisdom of places like the Book of Numbers. Uh, but due to sin, uh, just because Israel had a good standard didn't mean they followed that standard correctly, and it didn't mean that there was not evil within Israel. So they certainly messed it up too. So. So I think it, the, it's not the, the, this is definitely a good system, but just having a good system is not the solution. You have to have uh, just people to enact the system. <laughs> you have to have uh, really a changed heart, all those kind of things. So uh, there will be, in fact, some of the, some of the, um, the reasons why God leaves the promised land, I'm, I'm studying Ezekiel right now, so 
why he leaves the promised land is because there's these injustices occurring in his on his land, and he just can't take it anymore. He's, he gets out. You're going to be this way. I'm getting out of here. So, uh, yes, so this is, no, without a question, um, we should learn from what they do here, but I think our, uh, our own current justice system is messed up because of evil hearts. Uh, uh, anyway, that, enough said. Yes, you're right. You're right. Absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Um, this system is not designed to protect true murderers. That's important. So, and what do they, uh, well, let's read 16 through 18. Um, where's our microphone now? All right, uh, Kyle or Jessica, why don't you read 16 and 18? Is this chapter 35? Yeah. Okay. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if you struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death, and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Okay, very good. So, what do we have here? What, what, uh, what, and this is in our justice system too, what aspect of a murder case is very important? The weapon and the motive, both of these are important, right? You, you hit them both. The weapon and the motive. Now, uh, don't think that the only weapons that count are iron, stone, and wood. That's not what's going on. It's not like, well, hey, yeah, I did it with a, uh, with a rope, so I guess I'm okay, right? So well, what it, this, this is designed to show you is that there is a some sort of implement that was designed to actually harm and kill. So that's what's going on. And we, if you're, a, if you're reading this and you were, uh, say you're in one of the, the, the jury trials, you know, during a trial, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go, oh, if it's not wood, stone, or iron, I guess he's off free. No, it, it's here to show you that there could be different ways in which someone could uh, intend to kill someone, but there has to be some sort of weapon to do that. All right, that's, that's what's happening here. Um, and there should be some sort of intent to kill, showing some sort of intent to harm. So, which I think these are still in our own judicial system today. I'm sure if Dan were here, he would tell us very plainly that these are things that they have to think about all the time. I <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 19 through 25. Uh, Kyle, just hand that to whoever you want to hand it to. There you go. Nathan Graybill's going to do it good. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him and shall put him to death, or and he shall put him to death. If anyone with malice, a forethought, shoves another or throws something at him intentionally so that he dies, or if in hostility he hits him with his fist so that he dies, that person shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Okay, so here, you know, you still get some other things, pushing, lying in wait, those sort of uh, issues of intent. But um, particularly here, the role of the avenger of blood, 
So the avenger of blood, it's, it's, not the, it's the avenger of blood being killed, but it's also the closest relative that is uh, pursuing this. So what is his responsibility? <laughs> yeah, he, he actually is the one who does the killing. <laughs> would be kind of hard, wouldn't it? But you can imagine... Uh, how this might give some relief to the those who loved, you know, that they they are uh, participating in this. Um, again, it seems uh, to some of us it seems not as appealing as to others. Again, it's like, yes, this is great, you know. Um, Yes, so, so if, you're, if you actually, it's one thing to get someone in trouble and send them off to jail or something. It's another thing to actually be the one to, to bring about the slaying of them. So uh, it's interesting that this word for avenger is also uh, where we get redeemer. Uh, when you get the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth, uh, the goel, uh, same word. Um, so why do you think, why are these related? I mean, you know this because of the gospel, right? Why are these related? Death is, it goes to the gospel, right? So Christ is the avenger of blood. He is the one who is going to, you have to stand before, he is going to be your prosecuting attorney, so to speak. I mean, the one to say you are guilty before God, but he's also your redeemer, right? He's also the one who has, it's the, the illustration of the, the judge who then is like a, a a relative of the person accused, and after pronouncing the sentence, comes back around and actually uh, stands in the place to receive the punishment that we deserve. And Christ is that. And it's, it's not my accident that this concept of avenger of blood and kinsman redeemer are very much related in Scripture. So, uh, In verses 22 through 25, we have um, the issue of, of the high priest, do we not? Verse 25, let's say he's innocent, and he's not, not going to be killed, he's restored. He has to, in a sense, stay in the city of refuge. Why would he have to stay in the city of refuge? Because the avenger of blood may not have really been satisfied with the judgment of the congregation, and he might still want to bring about justice on his own, so he stays there for at least a certain amount of time. That's one aspect of it. But here it says that he's staying there until when? And what does that have to do with anything? I mean, this is one that always, you know, kind of, Baffled me. And then you think, well, if, if you're like waiting on the high priest to die, if he's a young guy, you're like, man, this is going to be forever. If he's an old guy, hey, I'm going to get out pretty soon. Uh, but he's, he's in this living in his city of refuge until the high priest dies. 
Now, if you studied the book of Hebrews, what occurs with the the, uh, death of the high priest? It's just, it, it, they call it like a re- changing of the law, or it's like a reset. It's like everything is just, it's kind of like the year of Jubilee. It's just like, whoop, okay, we're back to ground zero again. Everyone go back to normal. Um, and so this anointing with oil, this, the death of the high priest, um, again, I think it has a foreshadowing of what Christ does in his death. There's it, because even if, even if the man was innocent of murder, there's still a death that occurred. Does that make sense? And, and if you know the book of Leviticus, you know the book of Numbers, God doesn't like death on his land. And so, so you know how we understand that, that Christ not only forgives our sins in his death, but he heals all our diseases. Like he removes the curse from us. And the, the death of the high priest I think in a, in a somewhat subtle but a, uh, a real way is foreshadowing that we have an eternal high priest. In his death, all of our diseases are healed. He sets everything, any, any death that's occurred in the land, he's renewing it. It's pointing us to the new heavens, new earth, and all that Christ has given us, which is why we would have holy oil, because the oil is a, is a sign of joy and gladness. Um, flip over to... Um, James for a moment. And I think this kind of mentality is is present in the book of James. A passage that many people struggle to understand. Uh, James 5, uh, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone of you among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over in him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then it says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So, uh, again, a lot, a lot of times this is taken, well, if you have enough faith, then you, can get, you won't ever be sick. You'll be healed of all your diseases. That's not the, it, it's not a health and wealth passage. The idea is that in Jesus Christ, every ailment, anything that's leading to death, death has been, like, born in Christ's body, such that those who come to Christ have the assurance that every sickness will be healed in Christ. Now, we would say that that will occur when Jesus returns and we receive our resurrection bodies and those kind of things uh, occur at that moment. But what he says here, um, you can have that assurance. That's why you actually anoint the person with oil. There's this joy over you because you know that you are... uh, this, this being lifted up is, is, is a promise to all who are in him. And then he says, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And, and the idea is God does discipline his people at times with, with sickness and, and pain in this world. And uh, if the idea is if you've got this ongoing sickness, you want to go to your elders you want to you want to come clean with any sin that you have. They, they're kind of talking with you about that, and then and then they can say, "Look, you've confessed your sins. They're beyond you are. This sickness is not a sign of God's wrath or judgment on you. You have the full assurance that you will be healed, uh, whether it be immediately or whether it be uh, upon death and the resurrection. The idea is that you will be." Uh, uh, completely healed. And I think that this connects back to the passage in Numbers because 
Because the death of the high priest settles everything. It's, it's, even though there's been death occurred, it's like it just, even slate. Everyone is healed in that. So, uh, questions. I know that that's all kind of quick. and I try to keep going to that James passage a lot because a lot of people don't uh, understand that. And very few people actually bring their problems to the elders to pray over. Uh, so... All right, 26 through 28. Lee, would you read for me? But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled, and the avenger of blood finds himself outside the boundaries of his city of refuge, and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood. For he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And uh, uh, keep, uh, I don't. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Um, so, very interesting stuff, right? So, so if you're the avenger of blood and you happen to see this guy, and the death of the high priest hasn't occurred, what can you do? Take him out. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it, not only is this somewhat shocking to us, you're, you're just like, oh. Uh, but, the, but the manslayer has to do, he has to submit to the provision that God has provided for him. Is that not similar to us in Christ? Why do you have a knowledge that you will be healed of every disease? Only because you're in Christ. You know, not because you, you, you just go do what you want or whatever. For us, the, the city of refuge is really hiding in Christ. That's what it, that's what it uh, is a foreshadow of. We don't want to be found outside of Christ. Um, and so, yeah. Um, strange to us in some ways, but I think very much God is... He's not just teaching a good moral concept. He's not just teaching what will work and prevent crimes in the land he is actually through his system teaching the gospel to his people that's what he's doing which is why it's not it, it, it there's some uh, some people want to take the old testament laws of israel and directly apply them to like american government well, it doesn't quite work that way because much of those laws are designed for Christians to lead them to Christ or to lead God's people to Christ. Um, in a pluralistic society, that's not necessarily the case. So our founding fathers are really wise. They, they tried to take many of the principles of the Old Testament law and, and try to apply them in a, in a pluralistic society. That's what they're trying to do. So... Um, Anyway, just don't miss that how much of the Old Testament law was pointing people to Christ. That's what it's doing. So, I mean, how could you, how could you implement the death of the high priest 
in a secular government. You know, like, oh, you're free. Don't worry about it. Death of the high priest, you're good to go. You know, as if, like, when Dan dies, you know, the Supreme Court judge, when he's gone, everybody's free. You know, um, no, it doesn't work that, quite that way. All right, uh, 29 through the end, 34. Who'd like to read that for us? Erica, you want to read for me? And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return... to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. Hmm. Okay, first off, we see there that there's, uh, there has to be two witnesses. That's kind of challenged in our day, like what, what, what is a witness? In their day, it would have been eyewitnesses. Uh, in our day, is it is like a, a sample of blood? Is that, is that a good enough testimony, a good enough witness uh, to actually um, make it possible? But the whole idea of having two witnesses um, is to prevent uh, certainly false accusations but you really see how in the New Testament, Jesus abides by this. He's always saying, oh, don't just believe my witness. Believe the works that I do or believe the work of the Spirit or believe God's testimony. He's always saying that there's multiple witnesses of who he is. So this idea of two witnesses is, is important. Um, in verse 31, it says, uh, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer. Why? What's the point there? Right, so there's, there's like levels of crime. Like if you steal something, you could have a ransom price for that. You could make restitution. But if you take somebody's life, there is no ransom for that, except the, the blood of the one that, that committed the murder. You know? So there's no ransom for this, and I think God is explaining that to us, which again helps us also to see that there's no salvation apart from the shedding of blood of Christ himself. He has to shed his blood. Um, interestingly enough, what is he saying about the land here? We think of, we think of uh, forgiveness and cleansing simply about our hearts. What does he say? What's, the blood defiles the land. Now this is... It's very much the show, it's shown. Now here, you know, he's talking about this specific land, um, but the fact of Abel's blood polluting the whole earth is also important because in order for there to be true salvation, there can no longer be death. There can't be death in the land, which is why it's necessary to have a resurrection and to have a new heavens and a new earth that is completely cleansed uh, of all the blood that has been shed upon it. Both 
blood of murder, but also just blood of death. Think about how much death fills the land. People are dying all the time. Wars are fought. Diseases occur. Can you imagine this, like, that is a, that is a, well, let's just go to Romans 8, see how God describes this uh, to us in Romans chapter 8. Um, verse uh, 18 and following. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. You could just as easily have said the creation was subjected to death. Um. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who subjected the world to death? No. Adam would have been... It was, it, Adam was the reason why it was subjected to death, his sin. But who actually subjected the world to death? God did. Now why did God do it? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of children of God. So you have been set free from the corruption of your sin. Therefore, there comes a time when the earth has to be set free from its bondage to decay. Because what happens to the earth is directly related to what happens to us. The earth was cursed because we were sinful. And now that God deals with our sin, then the, the earth has to be remade, re, uh, uh, fully cleansed and fully functioning. So he says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait for the adoption as sons. Uh, for in, it was the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So like the, the actual redemption of your body such that you will no longer experience death. The creation, there will be no signs of death. Think about how much we look at in our life and we see death every day. Some of it due to like murder, but a lot of it just due to death. You know, you drive down the road, you hit a possum. Then you see the vultures eating up the, po- eating up the possum. You just see death everywhere. And God says, that is not what I want. I am going to cleanse my land where there will be no death. There'll be no murder, there'll be no death, period. And he's again showing this in these laws. He's pointing his people not to a day where they're just following the rules well, but living in a land of death. God is actually showing them that there has to be something greater where death is no more. That's, the, that's what's happening. Uh, why in verse 34 is this so important? This is the place. Can, can the source of life dwell in the presence of death? No. This is why uh, in the Old Testament it seems crazy, but someone who's got a skin disease through no fault of their own can't go into the temple. Not because God's saying that that person with leprosy can't ever be in a relationship with him, but he's pointing them to the fact that you cannot truly enjoy life with me until I heal all your diseases. 
this is, this is the, the point here. We have waiting for us a land of pure delight. Not only will there not be murder taking place, but there will not be any death whatsoever. Um, turn to Matthew 5. I've got to be quick here because i got to get through Numbers 36 real quick, which will not be hard. But, um, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Just to ratchet it up in our heart. So how many of you have committed murder? All of us. So just because you haven't actually physically committed murder, you have committed murder. Right? Um, Who is the avenger of every one of those negative... Hey, little girl. How you doing, Mac? Um, Who is the... She's all right. Who is the one that... um, Who is the one that will avenge you? Who is the one will be the, the prosecutor for every angry thought that you've had Jesus Christ he is your avenger he knows your thoughts he knows every wickedness that you have done even in the inner recesses of your heart but that is a good thing because the one who is your avenger is also your redeemer that's what gives us confidence that's why we're so crazy as Christians we're not afraid to tell people that we are guilty of sin. Because we know that the one who is going to prosecute us is also the one who will defend us by his own blood. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel in the book of Numbers. Okay, so now we get to the final uh, issue here. Let's, let's just have uh, Mary done. Why don't you read all of chapter 36 for us? Make sure we get this done. The heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, from the clans of the people of Joseph, came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs the heads of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel. They said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the people of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. But if they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers, and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance. And when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. And Moses commanded the people of Israel, according to the word of the Lord, saying, The tribe of the people of Joseph is right. 
This is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think is best, only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses, for Malah, Tirzah, Hoglah, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brothers. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Okay, so um, we're dealing with inheritance. And within inheritance, there are individual concerns and there are community concerns. We've talked about this uh, when it came to vows, that there are individual responsibilities with the law to keep your vow, but there's also community responsibilities that those in authority over you have, have a kind of a right of refusal. Well, the same kind of thing is going on here. Um, all they're trying to do is they're trying to understand inheritance. Um, so maybe the easiest way to, to liken this is to you and I. Uh, in fact, I just was asked last night. Um, so when we get to heaven, assuming that maybe some of our loved ones are not going to be there, uh, like they, they'll be judged in eternal hell because they don't know Christ, um, Will we, like, be aware of that? And if so, how can we be joyful when we're thinking? And, and I was just thinking, you know, I, I don't really know how to answer that question. You know, I know that God knows everything, and he he's, uh, hasn't forgotten. I just I don't know how that will play out in our own, in our own um, uh, lives. So it just gets confusing. Well, in this situation, they're, they're dealing with hypothetical uh, situations that somehow will will like cause the community aspects of the inheritance to be jeopardized. Uh, and what is the, what is, um, this is the daughters of Zelophehad. Remember Zelophehad, I'll just call him Z. Uh, he didn't have sons, so he had no sons. And so the, the daughters come and say, hey, can we... Um, Can his name carry on through us as daughters? And what was, this, what was the answer? Yes, because Zelophehad, big fear, could he lose his inheritance? And that's, that's his fear. Could the inheritance be jeopardized because of future generations? Answer, well, daughters can, can carry on the inheritance. But then this brings up a new, uh, a new uh, wrinkle in this. So what's the new situation that could happen? 
Yeah, so if they married outside of Zelophehad's tribe, you can see now, okay, they have, a, they have an individual right to do that. But guess what stays with Zelophehad? The inheritance. And that the, the daughters then actually attach themselves to some other inheritance, uh, some, their, the inheritance of their husband. Now, but the, in order to not confuse things this way, you can see how it could get really confusing, the, they say, well, what should these daughters do? Marry within the clan. Whew, that just saves a lot of, you know, just may stay married within the clan, you know. So, um, so the idea is you've got this fear of any person losing their inheritance. And yet at the same time, practically, there are certainly descendants of these women that married outside of the clan at some point, right? So, um, so there's this... Um, uh, need to keep the inheritance set within, I mean, you could almost do it this way. Um, no, that's not, that's eight. Uh, I don't know how to get 12 there. Maybe that's 12. I don't know. You get, so like every portion, every tribe had to have their particular portion. You couldn't just take out a portion of the tribe because all Israel had to have an inheritance. Okay. Um, so, look at, turn over to 1 Peter 3, 1, verses 3 through 5. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. I'm guessing that no one here has been concerned whether you had a piece of uh, some sort of inheritance within the land of Israel, right? Nobody's going, Shannon's going, oh yeah, I was really worried that, that if my inheritance was going to be here or down here. That's not, why don't we worry about that? Well, 1 Peter tells us. So 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Uh, Christian, would you read those for me, please? Okay, so do you have an inheritance? Yeah, and what is your inheritance? Yeah, it's kept in heaven. It's actually an earthly inheritance. New heavens, new earth, but it's kept in heaven, guarded by God's power, right? And is it an, is it an inheritance that can any way be lost? It's imperishable. It's undefiled. Can we, can we say in the in the book of Numbers, how important that the land would not be defiled, right? We've just learned that, how important God's land being clean is. Well, your inheritance is imperishable. It never ends. It is undefiled, and it doesn't fade. It doesn't get weaker with time. You know, it gets stronger. So this is your inheritance, right? So the same concern that Zelophehad had is not fulfilled by trying to finagle, like, you know, my daughters stay married and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It would be if our inheritance was an earthly inheritance. But it's not. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. Because he says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
The inheritance that you're looking for is of the resurrected world, the new heavens, new earth, that is going to be undefiled, unfading. That's what we're looking forward to. And so any fear that Zelophehad would have, you should not have as you continue to trust in Jesus Christ because he keeps your inheritance for you. Um, So you can see how God showing how important it is for one person to not lose their inheritance in this land again leads you to Christ. And the sure knowledge that his death and resurrection will will not allow you to lose your inheritance. If you could lose your inheritance, you should be afraid right now. Striving to keep it. But instead, through faith, you can have confidence that nothing... Let's say somebody comes in here and starts blowing up uh, Faith Presbyterian Church. Has your inheritance been taken away from you? No, it has not. Because your inheritance is not of this world. Um, questions or comments? We're, we're out of time, but I'll give maybe one comment or question. <clears throat> Many of the lessons in the book of Numbers are there to give you a, a little bitty uh, childlike understanding of, of these great, incredibly spiritual, eternal truths. That's what the book of Numbers is all about. And that's why we need to study it. Not because we're trying to return to that. We see it fulfilled in Christ, and that is our hope and our joy. Father, thank you so much for the book of Numbers, and I do pray that you would help us to uh, live with confidence in our internal inheritance kept in heaven for us, unfading, undefiled, imperishable, that we would rejoice in this and our confidence would be sure that no one can take that from us. Uh, Give us confidence, give us faith, help us to not live in fear of this world, anyone that can do us harm. Thank you that you are the great avenger. There's no one who will avenge the blood of, of our sin more than you. There's not someone who's a a stronger prosecuting attorney, but also we have you, the strongest prosecuting attorney, as our kinsman redeemer as well. And we give you praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Next.